Well, we'll go ahead and do it one more time because you can't get enough on Easter Sunday. Alleluia, the Lord is risen. It is always good to bring back those alleluias after six weeks of Lent and a long Holy Week. Uh, some of us had a longer Holy Week than others, but it was, a, it was a good Holy Week nonetheless. So we have been in the wilderness for the past 40 days with the Lord. We've spent the past seven days reading and rereading the story of his suffering and death. We stripped the altar bare on Maundy Thursday as we remembered his arrest. We mourned his death, walking the way of the cross on Good Friday. We quieted ourselves for a Sabbath rest when he was in the grave on Holy Saturday. And now we've come with the astonished women to an empty tomb to hear the testimony of an angel. That empty tomb is the cornerstone of our faith as Christians. As St. Paul says, if our Lord Jesus Christ is not risen from the grave, then our faith is in vain. We are still dead in our sins. There is no hope of our own resurrection. And as he says, we are of all men most miserable. But of course, we are not most miserable, are we? St. Paul goes on to say, Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So that is a quotation from 1 Corinthians 15, and it's part of a collection of St. Paul's resurrection statements uh, from three passages in the epistles that together become our canticle uh, for morning prayer during Easter that replaces the Venite. This canticle is called the Pascha Nostrum, the Latin title coming from the opening phrase of those collections uh, where it says, where he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Um, that should be familiar because we just read it in our epistle. Now, the old Germanic word that comes to us in English as Easter, that's rooted in their word for the rising of the sun. And indeed, for those early Germanic-speaking Christians, they used that word because they were celebrating the rising of the Son of Righteousness, the rising of the Son of God from the dead. If you have heard on the History Channel that it comes from an old goddess, there is no evidence for that old goddess. That's something that Jacob Grimm made up in the 19th century. It doesn't exist. In most languages, though, that's not the word we use. In most other languages, other than really today, German and English and a couple other derivatives, the word for the feast traces back to the Hebrew word Pesach, or Passover. Most of the rest of the world uses a single name to describe the Old Testament celebration of the Exodus and the New Testament celebration of the Lord's resurrection. And really, that is how we should see these two very important feasts. In the Old Testament, God redeemed his people on the first Passover. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He adopted them as his own. He then commanded the people to keep the Passover every year as the chief of their holy days. They would eat special food, they would say special prayers, and they would recount what God did for them and for their ancestors. When you look into the details of the rest of the Levitical priest, the rest of those Old Testament holy days, all of them point back to the Passover one way or the other. They all flow from the miracles and memory of the Passover. The very sacrifices of the temple system as God gave to Moses 
All of those point back to and are in memory of and flow from the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Even the Sabbath day, which we remember from Genesis, is a commemoration of creation. By the time we get to Deuteronomy, it's become a memorial of the Exodus and the Passover. So for the Hebrews, the Exodus was the most important moment in history. Let's fast forward a few centuries. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 17 and 16, St. Paul calls the ceremonial aspects of the Torah, which includes the holy days, the festivals, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, a shadow of things to come, but, he says, the body is of Christ. So many centuries after that first Passover in Egypt, on the anniversary of the very day, our Lord Jesus Christ became the true Passover lamb. When his blood was shed on Golgotha's cross, so that his blood would then be applied to the doorposts of our hearts and the angel of death would pass over us on the last day. The Passover that we read about in the Torah and all of the other feasts, the holy days, the Sabbaths, the sacrifices that point to the Passover, they now point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered death upon the cross for our redemption. He made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So is, is it any wonder that we now gather every Sunday, every Lord's Day, to commemorate his resurrection? Is it any wonder that Easter Sunday becomes the central day of our calendar as Christians, just as Passover was for to Israel of old? Is it any wonder that we say, Alleluia, we say, Praise ye the Lord? Indeed, this new Passover the Pascha of our canticle. It's now the most important moment in history. And so we see in our gospel, we see a band of women coming to the empty tomb. St. Mark identifies them as Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. And at the end of the previous chapter, he says that they were also at the cross. St. John tells us in his account that the Blessed Virgin Mary also was at the cross, But John identifies the other Mary as her sister and the wife of a fellow named Clopas rather than the mother of the younger James and Joseph. Well, what this tells us is that while the apostles, with the exception of John, had fled in terror, the holy women, as tradition calls them, remained faithful to the Lord. Other than Mary Magdalene, who was one of the Lord's closest friends, the holy women were all part of Jesus' family. Church history tells us that Salome, who was also the mother of James the Greater and of John, that she was the natural sister of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The other Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, was her sister-in-law, most likely, the wife of Joseph's brother Alphaeus or Clopas or Cleopas. Um, Our own regional archdeacon is named after uh, St. Joseph's brother. Uh, uh, Father Cleo is Father Cleopas, actually. While the Gospels do not address the absence of the Blessed Virgin Mary from the tomb, they just don't talk about it one way or the other, it is absolutely beautiful that the other holy women take it upon themselves to anoint Jesus' body now that the Sabbath is over. Despite the danger from the Roman guards, despite the danger from the Jewish authorities, despite that big old stone that they didn't know what they were going to do about, the holy women remain devoted to the Lord. And for that devotion... They become the first witnesses to the resurrection. 
They meet an angel who tells them to bear witness to the empty tomb by finding Peter and the other apostles. Now, later on in the chapter, in the, in the passage that immediately follows, Mary Magdalene, she lingers a little bit and she even meets the risen Lord himself. So as the first eyewitness to the risen Lord, Thomas Aquinas calls her the apostle to the apostles. Now, that does not mean, of course, that she was one of the 12, that all of a sudden now the 12 were 13 and one of them was a woman. That's not how that goes. Um, it doesn't mean that she's one um, whom our bishops trace their success back to. It doesn't work that way. But we do see an, a unique role as the one who was sent to the sent ones. That's what apostle means, those who were sent. Considering how in those days in the ancient world, especially that part of the ancient world, the testimony of women was not considered credible, the gospel's description of the role of the holy women in the story of the first Easter, that's pretty amazing. As usual, the Lord Jesus turns expectations upside down. The scriptures are fond of these ironic reversals where the younger surpasses the elder, where the barren give birth, where the first becomes last, the last become first, where God uses the foolish to put the wise to shame. And so the angel tells the holy women to go and to tell. Tell the disciples and Peter that the Lord will meet them. Tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus keeps his word. And really, when we look back, hadn't he been talking about his death and resurrection on and off for the last three years? Yet the disciples, like so many of us, were blind and deaf. They saw what they wanted to see. They heard what they wanted to hear. But Jesus appears to them nonetheless. He makes them breakfast. He breaks bread with them. He explains the scriptures to them. He lets Thomas touch his wounds and everything changes. Now the apostles, the disciples, have the same courage as those holy women. Now they go and tell others. Now they truly become fishers of men, spreading the gospel to all the world. Now we're going to need to read the gospel passages for Easter Monday, for Easter Tuesday, and for the octave of Easter to get the rest of that story. But it's because of the rest of that story that you and I are here today. It's because of the rest of that story that God's law, as was promised, finally goes out from Jerusalem and the pagans, the Gentiles were brought into God's family. It's because of that story that we believe in things like the inherent dignity of every human life. We believe that it's a good thing to have a just society. We believe that a basic education should be offered to all so that everybody at the very least can read God's word. We believe that we should treat others as we would like to be treated that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. The pagans did not believe those things. You can't have those things if the gospel hadn't gotten there first. Now, we Christians have not always been model disciples of the Lord. We've made many, many, many mistakes over the centuries. Nevertheless, the spread of Christianity has been the single greatest force for positive societal change in history. So why is that? Well, it's because the Lord Jesus, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, he changes men's hearts. He makes us new creatures. He gives us new birth. He opens the eyes of our hearts just as he did for Peter and the apostles. This is why in our epistle, we're told to chase sin out of our lives and our hearts. St. Paul wrote, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? 
Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. Again, we have here Passover language. In the Old Testament, Passover was the feast of unleavened bread because the Israelites had to leave Egypt in such a hurry that there was no time for the starter dough to be added to the rest of the bread. We've got a couple of folks that make sourdough. Think about it like that if you've ever done that. But they didn't have time to do that. So the bread eaten at Passover, it's simple flour mixed with water and baked. There's no leaven. And per the law of Moses... The Israelites were to remove all the leaven from their homes for the week-long feast of Passover. Now, I have quite a few Jewish friends and family. Um, for many years, I, I, I kept the uh, Mosaic Passover um, back in the day for much of my teens and 20s. And I can attest that calling uh, Passover, they're calling the Feast of the Unleavened Bread an actual feast. <laughs> it feels like a stretch by the end of the week. Uh, one, of my, one of my good buddies in college, his birthday was in, um, at the end of April, and it almost always fell in Passover. And he was so mad every year. <laughs> Though those those uh, Passover-friendly cakes, uh, yeah, they don't cut it. <laughs> but there's a moral illustration to this Mosaic custom. Leaven becomes, in the Bible, a symbol for sin. And just as we liturgical Christians use Lent as a time of fasting, almsgiving, and prayer as a discipline that helps us identify lingering sin so that we would, as we tell the kids, make room for God. In the same way, the search for leaven and the purge of leaven in the Old Testament was to be a discipline that mirrored that search for and purge of sin in the Israelites' life. So in our epistle, St. Paul uses this same metaphor for our lives in the New Covenant. Yet just as the Old Testament Pesach is a type and shadow that ultimately points to a new and better Pascha in the New Covenant, so too did the Old Testament purge of leaven speak of a new and better purging of sin. In the Old Covenant, the Messiah had not yet come. God the Son had not taken on human flesh and become one of us. The Holy Ghost had not yet fallen upon God's people and been given to the entirety of the people, um, but rather he only came on some people at some times and usually only temporarily. In other words, the Old Testament saints did not have the same internal change that comes from the indwelling of God's Spirit in the same way that we do in the New, Test in the New Covenant era. So St. Paul his admonition to purge the old leaven, it's followed by the opening verses of our Easter canticle. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the unleavened, neither with the leavened bread of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Since the Lord Jesus has become our Passover lamb, since he's redeemed us by his blood, since he has risen from the dead, since the tomb is empty, since the Holy Ghost has been poured out upon us, we can indeed keep the feast. Like the Marys and Salome, we've become part of Jesus' family. We've been adopted, the scripture says, as his brethren. Like the Marys and Salome, we can remain faithful to our Lord no matter what. Indeed, we've been empowered by a supernatural love of God, a love that comes from God himself, a love that rises even above the natural affections of family and friends. And if and when we mess up and do fail, 
We can repent at any time, return to the Lord, turn from going the wrong way, turn back, rethink our ways. So therefore, dear Christian, come to the Lord's Passover. Eat the bread of heaven, drink the cup of salvation. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.